0: will open your Bibles, if you would, to Acts chapter 20. We'll be in Acts chapter 20 for a couple more weeks as we look at Paul's farewell address to the Ephesian elders. It's important to realize that of all the speeches in Acts, this is the only one delivered to people who were already Christians. So rather than the common view that ancient people were stupid, we should recognize, looking at... The depth and complexity of the speeches delivered to unbelievers on multiple occasions around the Mediterranean Acts that ancient people were smarter and had better attention spans than most of us do. That this discourse of Paul's is no exception. It's rich. So let's read it together. Acts 20, starting at verse 17. From Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, You know from the first day that I came to Asia in what manner I always lived among you, serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews, and how I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying to Jews and also to Greeks repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And see, now I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy, and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God." And indeed, now I know that you all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, will see my face no more. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Father, help us. To see the model of your servant, the wise master builder, who under Christ is indeed the major instrument in the founding of the church. Lord, we ask that you would assist us to listen to his words carefully. Help us to see the man of sorrows and help us to see the faithfulness of ministry that Paul exercised in imitation of. Of his Lord and Master. We pray these things, Father, in the name of Christ, asking that you would help us all to listen and help me to speak. Amen. Well, we are all called to serve God. We understand that service to God is a priority in the Christian life. Paul's statement here in Acts 20 of how he served is classic as he describes so many aspects of the Christian life and Christian ministry. Now, we're not all called to be the apostle to the Gentiles or the wise master builder who built on the foundation of Jesus Christ in the same way as the apostle Paul. But we are all called to service, to work for Jesus as he builds his church. So as we look at Paul, we'll see that he sets a permanent example of what true Christian service ought to be. Paul shows us what true Christian service looks like. The first thing in in the part of this speech that we'll look at, we'll see seven things, but the first of them is simply that he was with God's people. He starts out not by saying, you know from the first day that I came to Asia how frequently I preached among you. Nor does he say, you know how many letters I wrote while I was here. He doesn't say, you know how much ministry hours I logged. He says, you know how I was living among you. Step number one, the first thing that Paul calls people's attention to about his ministry is simply that he was there. People call this the ministry of presence. That title sounds kind of silly. Paul doesn't say, you know my ministry of presence. He just says, I was here. I lived here. With you, As we saw in Exodus this morning, what's the greatest way in which God reveals himself to his people? Not the parting of the Red Sea, not the burning bush, not the plague of hail, but rather in coming and moving in and dwelling with them. And Paul, like Jesus, says the same thing. I was with you. I lived here right alongside you. Jesus loves his people to gather. Jesus loves to gather with His people. So what is Paul telling us? You need to be with the people of God. We shouldn't say, oh, I wish I could get away from these church people and go find my non-Christian friends where I could actually cut loose, have some fun. Paul doesn't say, you know how I was with you except for a few nights a week when I had to go be at synagogue events. You know how I was with you except for my monthly trips to Vegas. No, he was with God's people for those three and a half years in Ephesus. But then he adds, serving the Lord, says my translation, but the literal word is slaving for the Lord. Paul worked as a slave of God, which is exactly how he identifies himself in his letter to the Romans, as we just read. Paul, a slave of God. Now, what can we say about slavery? Slavery is a big topic today, and yet discussing what slavery actually is is something that typically falls by the wayside. The definition of a slave, we already mentioned Aristotle's two-word definition, the slave is a living tool. A slave is someone who is directed by someone else, someone who is not capable of self-direction, or who is not allowed self-direction, but rather has to have his movements, his work, his life, decided entirely by somebody else. Now, based on that definition, you can see why slavery is anathema to our present culture. Slavery is the exact opposite of expressive individualism. If my highest purpose in life is to show who I truly am, then me being bossed in every facet of my life by somebody else squashes my personality and my opportunities for self-expression at every turn. Paul doesn't say that that's a bad thing. Unfortunately, God made me his slave, and you didn't see the real Paul. No. He says, I'm directed by somebody else. I'm a slave, and that means my life is not my own. I belong To Jesus Christ. Of course, he says that in so many words, in various ones in his letters. Galatians 2, for instance I've died, and my life is hid with Christ and God. Christ, who is our life, appears, will appear with him in glory. But he speaks of himself regularly as dead, and in order to emphasize that, seemingly, he even took a new name. The man you used to know as Saul is gone. The one you see before you is Paul, slave of Jesus Christ. The slave is directed by somebody else in the same way that the piano is directed by the hand of the pianist or that the missile is directed by the hand of the gunner. That's what Paul is describing. Not, I boss myself, I work for me, I'm an independent entrepreneur in the religion field. None of that. I am a slave subject to someone else in every facet of my life. What else can we say about slaves? Slavery is a humble position. To be a slave is to be in the lowest rung on the socioeconomic ladder. You might be the slave of somebody very important, as Paul was. But nonetheless, at the end of the day, you are a slave. You don't get to decide how you're going to live. Your master decides that. We think of Paul as occupying an exalted position. Everybody we know admires Paul, thinks the world of him, thinks of him as this tremendous, eloquent, brilliant founder of the church. That is not how Paul appeared to himself or to his contemporaries. If you saw Paul you would see a weak, strange, blue-collar guy. Uh, Somebody in the acts of Paul and Thecla from about 100 years after this described him as this bald-headed, bandy-legged guy. Whether that author ever saw Paul, we don't know. But certainly, they did not see an impressive figure. They didn't see somebody who was going to be headlining Hollywood's latest tentpole blockbuster. They saw somebody that they regarded as a little bit touched, a little bit goofy, a little bit weak, or odd. They certainly didn't think of him as the greatest of the apostles. And as the author of a pile of 13 letters, the least of which is worth more than a pile of every New York Times bestseller for the past century. It's not how he came across in his own day. He was a humble Individual and he was treated as such. In fact, you could almost consider him as close to homeless, a permanent traveler, somebody who lived on the road, moving from place to place. The slave, furthermore, well, Paul says it, slaving for the Lord with all humility. He was lowly. And he adds... With tears. With many tears. Man, when is the last time you cried? It would be interesting to go around and poll all the pastors that we know and find out when they last sobbed. Paul says his ministry led him to cry a lot. Many tears. He allowed himself to feel. He allowed himself to to sob to be beat down by life and finally paul was attacked plots of the jews he says remember how we talked about even to get here to miletus he had to cancel his plans he was going to go on a vacation cruise there was a cruise that catered to jewish pilgrims that sailed from greece back to the port of jerusalem the port near jerusalem Paul was going to take it, and then he realized, you know, if I get on that boat, the Jews on there will probably kill me. So he decided to go back by a different route. But that's just one of the many times when he escaped plots against his life. Paul was attacked. So if your paradigm of service to God is being honored, being respected, and being happy, you have the wrong paradigm. Paul says, here's my ministry paradigm, I'm lowly, and I cry a lot. Imagine seeing that in a church's ad. Wanted. Senior pastor. Come here to be lowly. To do whatever Jesus wants. And to cry all the time. Right? You see that? Occupational hazards. It's listed in the longer job descriptions. Must be able to lift 40 pounds. Move about freely. Work late at night. And... Must enjoy crying. That's what Paul says about service to Christ. You don't have to be able to lift 40 pounds, but you're going to want to make sure your tear ducts are clear. Jesus was a man of sorrow. Paul was a man of tears. How many pastors that you know or I know, including myself, would you characterize as a man of sorrow or a man of tears? Not me. Not many of my pastoral colleagues and friends. Right, Suffering is countercultural in our age of gratification. And suffering is what characterizes the greatest saints, men like Jesus and Paul. I'm not saying that we should all go seek suffering. But you have to wonder if there's a connection between the general weakness of the church that we can all see and the general lack of suffering among the members of the church. But lots of people have slaved for Jesus. So Paul mentions that first, I slaved for him. Here's how I slaved for him. But few people have testified to Jesus like Paul did, and that's how he starts verse 20. I was testifying. I kept back nothing that was profitable. So Paul's, the ministry, his goal was to get across anything and everything profitable. One can think of William James, the American pragmatist. Pragmatist. What is the cash value of this idea? An idea is true if it pays off, he says. Well, Paul says something that sounds almost like pragmatism. I taught... What was profitable? I taught things that were valuable, that would work in the real world, that would pay off. And that is all I taught. All I taught. A preacher who says I can't address genetic engineering or sexuality or drug use because Scripture doesn't say anything directly about them is not a preacher who's following the model of Paul. Paul doesn't say how I kept back Nothing that I could find in Ezekiel 40. I kept back nothing that was in Psalm 119. No, he says, I kept back nothing profitable. Anything and everything profitable I could find, I gave it to you. So what did he consider profitable? Well, he addresses that in Timothy and Titus. He says in First Timothy that questions about genealogies and myths are not profitable. One of my seminary professors wrote a dissertation on genealogies. I didn't ask him if I could read it, but Paul says, in general, questions about genealogies, family history research, perhaps, not profitable. Myths, not profitable. Instead, he also adds this in Titus, avoid foolish debates, genealogies, quarrels, disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless, So, we know what he didn't bother teaching while he was in Ephesus no disputes about the law, no quarrels, no foolish debates. How many angels can dance on the head of a pin? Superlapsarianism versus infralapsarianism. All these things have come up in church history. Paul wanted nothing to do with these questions. Instead, he tells us what's profitable. The character and works of God, the life and ministry of Jesus, and especially the moral requirements of the law. Paul also says in Titus that good works are profitable for men. In other words, what did he teach? He taught what the Great Commission says, how to obey everything Jesus commanded. That's how Jesus described the profitable. Anything that pays off in terms of good works is a profitable item in the Christian's spiritual diet. So anything that helps you obey Jesus, that's profitable. Anything that doesn't help you obey Jesus, not profitable. Paul stuck to the profitable. Where did he teach? He taught in public and in private homes. He was willing to teach in a setting like this. If you invited him into your home, he was willing to teach you there as well. He didn't say, you know what, it takes me the same amount of prep time to speak to two people or to 2,000 people, so I'm not going to speak to two people. I will only speak to crowds above a certain size. Not how Paul thought. In public, I'll do it. House to house, I'll do it. If I have an opportunity to teach in private, in a home, I will take it. That is where he taught. And what did he teach? His content generally is the profitable. His content specifically is repentance and faith. Testifying to Jews and to Greeks, repentance toward God, faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul majored on turning from sin and believing in Jesus A ministry that doesn't major on these two things is drifting away quickly from profitable territory. Now, there are some who end up majoring on only one of those things. And the message every week is repent, 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 and come forward and repent. Come forward and profess faith in Jesus. We know you did it last week, but you probably need to do it again. So we'll have another altar call this week. Others focus so much on faith in Jesus that they never tell anybody, you need to repent and turn from sin. They spend their whole time saying, here's something else about Jesus that you should believe. And here's another thing about Jesus that you should believe. And the people in those churches are known as the dead orthodox. They know a lot about Jesus, but they've never actually realized that they need to repent and turn away from their sins. Paul says, I taught both. I taught repentance I taught faith. Parents, as you try to instruct your children, what do you major on? Do you major on repentance and faith? Or do you major on the minutia of the moral law? Right? If I ask your child, what's most important to your parents? Well, they say, I think they care the most because they seem to yell the most about whether I put away my socks and shoes. All right. Bad job, parent. That is not what Paul majored on. He majored on repentance and faith. Now, the moral instruction is profitable. Paul says that in Titus. But the most profitable thing, the thing where he focused his attention is, do you turn from sin? Do you believe in Jesus? Why? Well, you can't be good. Unless you turn from sin and believe in Jesus. Moral instruction is pointless when it's given to people who haven't repented and believed. There's a certain kind of civic righteousness. That's not what we're aiming for. We are aiming for true obedience to God that springs from a heart transformed by faith in Christ. That's what Paul was aiming for. And as we serve God as parents, as pastors, as people discipling one another in the church, that's what we should major on too. Turning from sin, believing in Jesus. Paul returns to the theme of suffering. Only now it's not past suffering that he experienced while living in Ephesus; It's future suffering. Now I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. Anybody ever gone on a trip Saying, I really have no idea what awaits me when I get there. But I'm going to put in the time and effort to go anyway. I don't know exactly what it is, but the prophets are telling me through the Spirit, or the Spirit is telling me through the prophets that it's chains and tribulations. Being locked in chains is not a pleasant experience. Being put through tribulations is not a pleasant experience. Paul is going anyway because his spirit is compelled by obedience to God. He knew better than anyone how much suffering his mission had brought on him. And he talked about it again and again. Why? Not to say, hey everybody, look at me. I'm really suffering for the kingdom and I'm about to go suffer more. Like a little pity over here. He's emphasizing it because in this speech he's passing the baton to the Ephesian elders and saying, it's on you guys now. I'm not here to build this church. It's your job. You are now taking over. So my sufferings are a warning to you. They're a sign of what's next for you. That's why Paul emphasizes his sufferings not to garner self-pity and a pity party with everybody else, but to say, you're taking over, I'm passing the baton, and this is what it will be like. There will be suffering. Do you expect suffering? Do you think that following Jesus is going to get you into trouble? We have a hard time expecting suffering because most of us know very, very few people who have actually gotten into trouble for following Jesus. We all know a lot of 85, 90-year-old Christians who never seem to experience any problems based on their faith. And so we say, "Nah, yeah, there will probably be one or two tribulations decades apart. Paul says, no, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. I'm expecting suffering. And elders, you need to expect it too. Christians, you need to expect it too. Not a pleasant message, which is why Paul mentions it repeatedly, because if you only hear it once, you shut it out. So he says it until you can't miss it. He further describes why he doesn't care about the suffering. None of these things move me. Why not, Paul? Because my life is not for fun. God didn't put me here to maximize my enjoyment. God put me here to live for him. I don't count my life dear to myself so that I may finish my race with joy in the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus. That's what we call holiness, living for God. His purpose was to serve God. And so, in one sense, it didn't matter to him whether he was in chains in the belly of a Roman ship or on some beautiful sun-washed plaza in a Greek city, kind of walking around with the tourists, looking at the architecture and having conversations about Jesus. Paul says, either way, my purpose is being fulfilled, and therefore, I don't really care what bad things are happening to me. My purpose is not to have fun, my purpose is to serve God. He lived for God, and he preached the kingdom of God. He says, I testify to the good news that God is gracious, the gospel of the grace of God, and I also have gone about preaching the kingdom of God. How are those two things related? Preaching the gospel of the grace of God, preaching the kingdom of God. The answer is that when the grace of God comes, it saves you. What does it save you from? It saves you from Satan's dominion. It saves you from Satan's kingdom and brings you into God's kingdom. So Paul is preaching God's grace that saves people from Satan's dominion. He's preaching God's kingdom into which people are saved. He preached Both of those things throughout his time in Ephesus. To preach repentance is to preach the kingdom. He preached, turn away from your sin and come under the dominion of God. Finally, he preached being right with God. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Well, that's quite a statement. I testify to you that I am innocent of the blood of all men. I have no one's blood on my hands. Now, Paul was a certified murderer. And that's why you know, it meant a lot to him to be able to say, Yes, my day job used to be to kill people, haul them off to prison, to stand there while Stephen was stoned. I used to do that for a living. But now that I've changed, that was Saul, this is Paul, and Paul's hands are clean. Because I have warned everybody I came in contact with. I have given you the whole counsel of God. Now this concept of blood guilt for failure to evangelize, it's not a concept we like to think about but I think it applies to us. There are people you're regularly around who don't even know you're a believer. You may not have been able to have a full-blown evangelistic conversation with you, with them. But if you've worked with somebody for five months and they don't know that you're a Christian, you're probably doing it wrong. That's what Paul says. I testified to everybody I could. I have... Nobody's blood is on my hands. Nobody's going to hell because they failed to hear it from me or because I failed to teach something they needed to know. Knowing someone will reject it doesn't mean that you should keep your mouth shut. We tend to calibrate our statements based on what we think will be acceptable, what people want to hear. Paul didn't, and that's why they tried to kill him over and over and over. But he didn't care because he was teaching the whole counsel of God. He was teaching the profitable. And that's why we try to look at the whole Bible and every doctrine within it. Because Paul not only says, I taught the profitable, but I taught the whole counsel of God. I taught God's whole plan. So this is Paul's ministry, and this is our calling too. Not to be apostles, but to be faithful in our place and calling. Live for God. Make disciples as you can in the place where He's put you, whether that's your children, your students, your co workers, your fellow church members, all of the above. Paul did it. He was with God's people from the beginning, he slaved for God. We are God's slaves too. Let's pray.